You're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. The media plays an important role in our politics. As we've discussed on the podcast before, how a campaign is covered by the media can impact their ability to fundraise successfully, among other things. But today we are going to dive into another way in which the media, money, and politics all intersect. Michael Hardaway is the founder of a media startup called Hardaway Wire, which provides what he calls an intelligence briefing to their membership on the major political issues of the day. Their readership includes CEOs, elected officials, and other major decision makers in business and government who rely on his briefings to help guide their work. He's here to talk with us today about how major financial decisions in business can be influenced by politics and the way the media can shape these high-stakes decisions by how it accurately or not so accurately captures the policymaking process. And there's something else about Michael that I'm really looking forward to talking to him about. He was a fundraiser on some of Barack Obama's earliest campaigns, including in the early days of his first presidential campaign. So we'll have lots to chat about. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm here now with Michael. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's good to be here, Andrew. Let's start with Hardaway Wire. Tell us all about it. What's the mission? Who does it serve? What's it all about? The mission is to help CEOs make smarter decisions. You know, we live in this era where we all have more information than we ever have, right? Through the internet and everything else. But the truth is we're information poor. A lot of that information is garbage. It's not accurate. A lot of news we read is partisanship and conjecture, and it's just a bunch of nonsense written by the 23-year-old reporter. So the question is, if you're the CEO of a global corporation, how can you get the best information? And the answer is Hardaway Wire. And what led you to it? How did you come to found Hardaway Wire? What made you decide that this was a problem that you wanted to tackle? Yeah. So I've spent about 15 years on and around Capitol Hill, you know, beginning with Barack Obama in the Senate and all the way up through the presidency and, and also in House and Senate leadership. What I quickly realized is there is a chasm between the high-level information that the president of the United States gets, but also United States senators and members of Congress. They get actionable high-level information. And through my job as a fundraiser for Barack, I got to know a lot of CEOs, and I quickly realized that they don't get access to good high-level political information. And kept those relationships after leaving Obama land. And I would just sporadically get emails from some of them. And they would say, you know, what's going on in the Hill? I'm not sure what's happening. I'm reading all of these things, but I'm still not clear here. And so I put together this informal email that I would send out once a week. And the idea is that it gave them clarity on a global scale of all the things they needed to worry about on a political landscape. And that became the foundation for our first product, which is Snapshot. And so, you know, sort of every Sunday evening, CEOs, members of Congress, diplomats get this email from us, and it gives them clarity on what they need to know for the coming week and the decisions they need to be aware of. And 
the foundational idea of all of it is that having clarity on the political landscape, they can then focus on their day-to-day jobs and make better decisions. You know, the idea that business leaders, CEOs and whatnot, you know, that their decisions are so heavily impacted by what's happening in the political landscape. I think that's a really interesting concept and it is certainly true, but maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Your your readers, the CEOs, these business leaders, what are the kinds of political decisions that they have to be especially attuned to that can impact the way that they conduct business? So if you're the CEO of Goldman Sachs or you're the CEO of Google, you're impacted by all of these things, right? From So for instance, for tech firms, you've got a number of policies in Europe that are increasingly sort of clamping down on their ability to gain personal information from their users, right? You're affected by Brexit. You're affected by Angela Merkel will be leaving soon and sort of the person that takes over there will have a critical role in the conversation about the identity of the users that use your service. So it's the idea of saying there's a lot of calamity happening around the world. Here's a little bit of clarity on what's happening on each continent. So then you can make better decisions for your business. And I think that another example here would be many of the CEOs that are members of our service that are in the energy and the finance sectors are particularly interested in China and the Belt and Road Initiative and generally, President Xi's overall five-year plan, right? And I think that, you know, through the trade war with the U.S. and the tariffs and all of these other things, they've been particularly interested in China, how that's going to affect their business, how that's going to affect their ability to conduct business, given that they all have offices there. And so I think that for them, at a high level, it's trying to figure out what all of this means for them. And then what about the other side of your kind of readership, you know, political leaders? Obviously, the media can have a really big impact in shaping how they behave and how they think and sort of even the way that they are understanding the problems that are in front of them. You obviously created Hardaway Wire because, as you mentioned, you saw a gap in what was available to them in in terms of what, what the existing media environment was providing for them. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what that gap was? In what ways is the current media environment failing when it comes to providing political leaders with the information that they need to make good decisions? The truth of the matter is that many of sort of the political articles that are written are written by people who mean well, but they don't have a firm grasp of the policy. They don't have the historical perspective of previous presidencies and congresses and how that all reconciles together. And they generally are focused on both sidesism, which is not wanting to blame one party or the other, when the truth of the matter is that facts have no party, truth has no party. And Hardaway Wire focuses on providing truth and facts, notwithstanding whoever's at fault. We're focused on giving clarity on what the situation is on the ground and what people can expect from there. And to be perfectly honest with you, We have many members who are part of the United States Senate and the House. And frankly, I was a little surprised by their engagement, which is pretty high, in that they have teams that provide them a lot of this information. And I think that it's probably the case with CEOs as well, who also have teams that they've decided this higher level, sort of higher quality information is more useful to them 
And that particularly surprised me, especially when it comes to certain members who are chairs of committees who have better information. One of our members is a cabinet official in the current administration. And, you know, this is an individual who has hundreds of people working under him and has access to all of the best information. But he reads Hardaway Wire every single week. And, you know, that to me says that for him, it delivers a certain point of value that he's unable to receive otherwise. And I think one of the things you just pointed towards, which a lot of people will will resonate with a lot of people, is this idea that the media feels a, a need to present everything as if, you know, that there's there's balance and there's sort of uh, issues on both sides. And it's kind of often cast through that political lens, which to your point, I think can obscure some just like underlying realities and facts on the ground. What about the role of money? I'm curious about your take on whether or not there's any sort of negative impact from the influence of money. Obviously, these media corporations, they've you know, they got to sell ads, they've got to pay their own bills. You certainly hear a lot of people criticize the media from from that perspective, but I don't know if yeah, I'm just curious in your take as sort of a, a new tech media founder, if it's your take that there's a perversive role of money in the way that the media covers politics. The media business is broken and it's ripe for disruption. Until this point, you have a very mediocre product that is essentially junk food. It's junk information. And they try to get as many eyeballs on it as possible. And then they sell those eyeballs for a tenth of 1%. And they try to get a few million people to read an article based on that model. They attach some sort of salacious, hyperbolic headline to it to try to get you to click on it. You click on it. You got to get two thirds through the article to figure out what the substance of the issue actually is. And, And then you're done with the article, but you leave feeling duped as if you've been tricked into reading something that's not actually what the headline purported it to be which speaks to the inferior quality of much of the information that exists. I think the model is just broken and people not only want smart information, but they need smart information and they will pay money for that information. And that's what we are focused on. I believe that the future of news is smarter. I believe the future of news is lucrative. I believe the future of news is profitable. It just has to be better. Information has to be better. The delivery system has to be better. And the entire ecosystem has to provide value for the readers. And so do you imagine that there'll be a growing interest on the part of consumers of news to just pay directly for it? Obviously, there's been a trend away from the advent of, of really the Internet made it so that what had you know, people you know, paying for newspaper subscriptions and the like, obviously, those initially took a huge dive as people began to find their internet through free sources online or sources that were being paid for through online advertisements, um, but not by the the consumer. And now there definitely does seem to be, I've, you certainly have heard anecdotal reports that, you know, people have increased their subscriptions to newspapers in some recent years as sort of a backlash, perhaps, to those years where where we were all just consuming what was ever in our, our social media news feeds. I'm kind of just talking anecdotal here. This is obviously not my area of expertise. So I'm curious, do you see the future of uh, the role of money in news and news coverage of politics being much more led by consumers that are willing to put their own dollars down in exchange for higher quality news coverage of politics? 
I think the future of news will be diversified. It'll be like the car industry, right? You could have a Toyota or you could spring for a Lexus or some people could buy an Aston Martin, right? The Aston Martin is going to give you better performance than you would get from the Corolla. And I see the news business going that way. You know, some people will spend five bucks a month for a newspaper and that's good information. Others will spend a thousand dollars a year for much better information. And it all just depends on what their needs are at the time. But listen, if you're a person who runs a large organization, a global organization, if you're a person who has a number of people working under you and you need to always make the right decision, you need better information. And subscribing to the $5.99 service per month is going to be insufficient. And that's where I see the future of the business going, which is you have multiple layers of levels of information you can ascribe to. I think on the premium end, you'll see more players in that space in terms of companies that are looking to provide better information. And then what is your take on whether or not that will lead to a growing bifurcation between kind of people who live in one reality and and people who live in in quite another. Obviously, this is an idea that has gotten a lot of attention in recent years as media uh, has diversified and has that has intersected with politics. You see that there are just people who consume one stream of information that purports to, to represent one kind of reality and people who are consuming another stream of information that's purporting to represent another. Do you see this as contributing to that if there are people who can afford to pay for one kind of reality and people who can't afford to pay for another? Or is this just about depth of knowledge and and that's a tale as old as time? There are always people who just obviously need a, a, a story that goes a little bit deeper than some others, depending on what, to your point, whatever their actual need is for that information, if it's just for personal awareness or if they're making entire business decisions based off of it. I have relationships with a lot of reporters and Many of them have said the same thing to me, which is I'm always on deadline to put out two to three stories a day. I don't have enough time to do real research. I had to sort of put something in the article to make it interesting enough for someone to click on it. But I don't really have the time to write this properly. And so what that means is that we all suffer. I have to suffer because I pick up the paper in the morning on my doorstep and I have to read some salacious headline that is a little dishonest because it doesn't characterize the story, but I also don't get the substance of what I need. Uh, largely because 20 or 30 or 40, 50 years ago, the people who wrote those stories had been in the business for 20 or 25 years and they had a grasp, a deep grasp of the topic. And so in this new era of clickbait and budget cutbacks in media, you ought to have people who are much cheaper to employ and they happen to be much younger and they are writing these stories, but don't have the context and the expertise that's needed to really inform me in the way that I need. And as it relates to the bifurcation of information, we certainly live in this era where, you know, people based on their party choose one outlet or another. The beauty of Hardaway Wire is that we are a truth-based organization. And so You know, some of our members are Republican members of Congress. Some are Democratic members of Congress. Some of them are Republican CEOs that don't believe in climate change. Others are Democratic CEOs that give heavily to that cause. And so 
what we focused on is the truth. What we never do is represent one particular ideology or another. We're focused on giving clarity on the facts on the ground. Our readers can then make the best decisions for themselves. Yeah, as you're kind of describing this, it makes me think that actually one of the tricks perhaps to getting people to consume like capital T truth, right, actual factual information might in some ways be by connecting it to money, right? Because if a CEO of a company understands that the information that they are consuming will influence significantly the future of their business, the future of their own personal livelihood, the future of their you know ability to hold their position as a CEO and business leader, basically, if there are real sort of economic stakes for them and their company and their employees, maybe you're not as willing to just uh, consume garbage, <laughs> a junk food, I think is how you put it, because, you know, it's... it's the the stakes are too high for that. Whereas when we all just kind of open our newsfeed and get what is to us a free stream of information or to even turn on our televisions, right? I mean, that's a medium that to the end user is largely free or very, very inexpensive, depending on exactly what you're what you're consuming. There's, I guess, I've never really thought about it this way, but I guess the stakes are pretty low because there isn't really any financial consequence, at least that we feel day to day, about whether or not the information we're getting is truly correct. It's really just a matter of how we feel about it. Well, I wonder what your reaction to that is. I mean, do you think that everyday people, not business leaders, so not your readers, is it just less important that they get accurate information? I mean, I think probably we all want everyone to get accurate information, but is it just a matter of that the media, when it's, when it's free, is essentially just no different than entertainment? I think most people are just trying to get by on a day-to-day -day basis and are trying to live their lives and go to work and pick up their kids and all of those things. And most of them don't have time to really invest financially or time-wise in, in real information in terms of global politics or what's happening in Beijing or London or Washington. They don't have the time and they don't have the resources probably. And I think that's just the reality of the situation. There always will be a market of people who need that information to make smarter decisions, but there also will always be a market of people who have disposable income and realize that we're all being underserved, all of us, with the information that we're being given. You know, you turn on the TV right now. I won't point out any particular network because I think there are many that are guilty of this. You turn on the TV and half of the things we see are gossip or they're celebrity news or they're whatever it may be. And all the things that are happening in the world right now, it seems to me that a better job can be done there in terms of educating people on the facts and what's happening. And in a way, Hardaway Wire is my way of doing my part. And, you know, the people that work with us, we all believe in the same thing, which is better information creates a better world. If I can get any of my members better information, they can make better decisions for the people that they employ, and they can make better decisions for the legislation that they pass. And and so that's my general perspective. And it's always interesting for me and for all of us to look at sort of the postmortem every week of the engagement around each piece of content from each member. And, you know, you'll see interesting things like, you know, so the CARES Act that passed Congress earlier this year and the piece of legislation that just passed. There's a member of Hardaway Wire who has been involved in the process of the coronavirus legislation that was passed earlier this year and the piece that was just recently passed by Congress. And it was always interesting 
for us to see how he engaged with our content of how we portrayed the situation on the ground. And he regularly, on a weekly basis, sort of remained closely engaged in that particular part of our coverage. And so I thought that was interesting because he's in the room and he has decided to remain closely engaged in this briefing that we put out every week. And that to me means something. I mean, in another case, we have a member who is, he was one of the original titans of Wall Street in the 80s. And he's now still a big person in global finance and he's involved in art and some other things. And we once published a story about some sort of financial regulation and that was being updated by the current presidency. And and so we sort of covered how that affected the economy right now. He emailed me the next morning and said, I was actually part of, I was in the room when this decision was made. And this is what we said. This is what we were thinking. And then he wrote up a paragraph for me, sort of outlining his thinking and what was said in the room. That's priceless. What I'm saying to you is that we published some information that went out to a bunch of CEOs and lawmakers and diplomats. I then received an email the next day from a guy who was partially responsible for that decision. And he gave me a firsthand account based on what he saw in the room as they were making those decisions. And I think from my perspective, that speaks to the value that we deliver, but also the appetite that exists for just good information. And people who have firsthand accounts of that information want to share that when they understand that you're someone who uses it properly. Yeah, no, it's very clear from what you've all built that the demand for high quality information is probably never been higher and clearly people are willing to pay for it. And I think that presents some really interesting questions and and will take us down some really interesting paths. Before, though, I let you go, there's another topic I wanted to talk to you about. And you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, which, you know, because this is the Money in Politics podcast, we're not just going to talk about money and media today. We're going to talk also about your helping former President Barack Obama raise money, right? So why don't you tell us a little bit about your role on that campaign back in its earliest days? Raising money for Barack Obama changed my life. You know, so I began with him just a volunteer on his Senate campaign in Chicago. Interesting enough, that began accidentally. I had been working weekends Hmm. at a private business club in the city, and he comes in one Saturday. And at this point, he's not a member. He's a nobody. He's running for Senate, but he's like third or fourth in line in the primary. So he's got no shot in winning. Hmm. He comes in in the way that he usually does, which is he's got one hand in the pocket And he strolls in like he runs the place, right? (laughs) And I said, I like that guy. So on the way out, I stop him. I'm like, hey, you're, you know, you're Obama, right? You're running for Senate. And he gives me some sort of smart ass answer, as he always does, which is why I love the guy. (laughs) And I said, listen, I'm in college. I can deliver the youth vote for you. And I made up a bunch of stuff about what I could do. I didn't really know what I was talking about. He kind of looked at me and he said, (laughs) okay, he hands me his business card which at the time he didn't really have staff. So it just had a post office box, had a a cell phone number and his America online email address. (laughs) Right. And so uh, I emailed him next week and I just volunteered and he ended up winning. And that was fantastic. I then, while I was in school, still worked for him in the Senate in Chicago, graduated, moved to Washington and started working on Capitol Hill. 
And then all of it changed when he ran for president because I then had an opportunity to be a fundraiser. And that changed my life because, you know, I'm a guy from suburban Chicago, regular family, no real connections, none of those things. And working as a fundraiser for this guy running for president named Barack Obama, I got to meet all of these important people and I got to build real relationships. And so I did that for him during the campaign and during the first part of his presidency. And I got to build real relationships with all of these titans of industry. Those relationships years later served as a foundation for Hardaway Wire and what we've been able to build. And, and that is priceless. And it's always something that I tell young staffers, which is if you have a chance, always try to fundraise at some point on some campaign for someone because the relationships that you make can change your life. And it certainly did for me. That's awesome. I think the advice is really great because I, I know that for a lot of people, fundraising is not super glamorous and a lot of work and can feel <laughs> uh, like quite an uphill battle, but it's a good way of framing it and a good reminder that that uh, kind of if thought about the right way and if, if you're if you're really taking advantage of the opportunity, there's there's clearly some, a lot of really a great growth that can happen from that. Before I let you go, just any kind of like day to day, you know, did you staff his call time? I mean, sort of like what, what, what did your fundraising, you know, aside from the glamorous bits where you got to meet uh, really interesting people, just any sort of like on the road stories that I know our listeners, which include a lot of fundraisers, will appreciate? <laughs> Well, I had several fundraising jobs. My first one was the unglamorous finance assistant role. And I know you're familiar with Andrew, right? <laughs> yeah. Where you do all the research and you, you do all the sheets and all those sorts of things. It's yeah. completely unglamorous. However, one of my more memorable times with Barack as a fundraiser was during the campaign in 2008. This must have been late summer or early fall. We had a fundraiser in San Francisco that he flew out for. And, you know, generally speaking, Brock doesn't like fundraisers. He doesn't like, you know, sort of that whole, that whole process, but he was in a good mood this day. And he comes and he comes to this event that we have for him. And in this event, first of all, we raise like $7 million in this one thing, right? Mm -hmm. We had like three or four different events inside of this hotel. And, and so the first thing was he was in a good mood. I remember because, we told him that, you know, we'd raise a good amount of money. And I remember that day because like that was sort of the day where I understood how the world worked. And by that, I mean, you know, I was still a young kid and I, just, I didn't know a lot. And I saw sort of how Barack came in, how he dealt with all of the CEOs who were there and wanted to get to know him, how he dealt with the people who worked in the hotel and how gracious and nice he was to them and how he just worked all of that together. I just observed it all. And I'll never forget like leaving San Francisco during that trip and thinking, I kind of get it. I now understand how it all works. And so that was incredibly impactful for me. And, you know, I worked in other parts of government and communications and those sorts of places, but fundraising is the foundation for really understanding the relationship between politicians and business leaders, which is not as impactful as people assume. Because mm -hmm. as I always tell people, on any given issue, there's a rich guy on this side and a rich guy on the other side. <laughs> and so the idea of thinking that you just hand a politician a bag of money and he does what you want, at least at a presidential level, is 
completely ridiculous. And, you know, the other thing is what I've realized is that, you know, lobbyist is a dirty word. Donor is a dirty word. But there are good people that have both of those job descriptions and want to do the right thing and do the best that they can to help politicians come to the right decision. And I think particularly with high net worth people who give money to politicians and the campaigns, you know, from my perspective, you're giving your own hard earned resources Hmm. to this cause that you believe in. And I think that is incredibly important and admirable in many ways. And I think that those people should be respected for really investing in the things they believe in, as opposed to looked at as doing something wrong. Well, I think that's really, really insightful. And certainly as someone who has worked at all ends of the spectrum, you know, providing that intelligence to those business leaders and and decision makers, and then back to your your more humble days of finance assistant to the at the time future <laughs> president of the United States uh, that's some really great perspective and and appreciate you sharing it well I'll thank you so much for joining me today it's been really fascinating to chat with you and I know I will be following I'm sure our listeners will be following for future updates from Hardaway Wire and different products that you'll be offering and just the many ways that you'll continue to to make sure that that better and more high quality information is available to the people who need it most it's good to be with you Andrew All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the CallTime AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at CallTime AI. CallTime AI.